Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Thriving Adoptees podcast. So today I'm delighted to be joined by Lynn, Lynn Wu McKitten. McKitten, did I say it right? Yeah. I, I practiced it a few times before we got on to try and get it right. Listen to you saying it on a few other podcasts. Um, so Lynn is a uh, fellow adoptee and you're also, um, you're a, you're a counsellor. Do, so, do, you, do you call yourself a counsellor? What, what word would you use? Yeah, I use the word counselor um, because of my background and, and my education and my licensing. I'm licensed as a, a professional clinical counselor, um, but I do what a lot of people would refer to as therapy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, Lynn and I spoke uh, like a month or so ago and we had a great conversation. So I'm really looking forward to this one today. And as a jumping off point, I wanted to uh, read something off your homepage. Uh, so, as always, listeners, um, check out the show notes for links to the uh, the guests' web pages and the social. Um, so, it's called uh, Sando Sando Well Wellness is uh, is is Lynn's um, Lynn, Lynn's counselling practice, and it says uh, you say I use a positive psychology approach, identifying what is right with us in order to support and motivate change away from the areas of our life that no longer serve us. So, I, I mean, it's a great philosophy. Can you can you share a little bit more to the background to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, I since working in the mental health field and then going through all my education to get my licenses as well, um, I think one of the biggest things that really kind of gets in the way for a lot of folks is the stigma of mental health and how it means you're bad or there's something wrong with you or you're broken or you're damaged or you're, you know, you're sick. Um, and so while it's important to me and learning the skills that I use to like help the folks who want to come and work with me um, to, to, you know, make change um, to identify symptoms and symptom management and all that good stuff. I thought what might, be equally important or what I found to be equally important, if not more important, is really recognizing and identifying the skills that we already possess and strengthening those things um, alongside of symptom management. Um, it's not about, you know, being like everything's fine and like this overly like positive view on things that are really harmful and like devastating and painful to the people that I work with, but more about finding that balance between the things that like we are doing, like there's so many of us who are out there like leaving, leading successful lives. And so why not identify and work on strengthening those things as well as working on like what's getting in the way and like, how do we manage our anxiety or depression today? Yeah. Yeah. It's so important. Isn't it? I've heard this, I don't know a while ago, I think, um, Somebody explained this to me in terms of like a lot of mental health, mental health coming after physical health as a as a as a practice as a science as a you know whatever, um, uh, and and the the because you know we go to the ER or what we call the uh, A and E right so we call it A and E um, which is accident and emergency is the equivalent to your ER uh, and we're looking for the, the medical models are looking for what's wrong uh, and, and therefore they took what was happening in physical health 
and took that to mental health. And that's why mental health traditionally looks for what's wrong. That's kind of what I remember, but I don't know, it was a long time ago. Does that that sound about right? Have you got a different take on that? I, I agree. And I think especially in like those critical times and like crisis and emergency situations too. I mean, that's how we troubleshoot and we find like maybe the quickest types of like interventions to help like relieve an immediate crisis. Um, but I think that's kind of spilled over to into like more general practice. And so the folks that I work with and in private practice too, we see a very kind of like wide spectrum of clientele versus someone who might be in an immediate like mental health crisis showing up in an emergency room or like an urgent care. Um, so that's what I wanted to kind of like expand upon this idea of like, yeah, we can do this management and crisis intervention. And also like there's this huge range of all these other types of things and and work that we can do regarding our mental health. Yeah. Yeah, so true, so true. Um, yeah, uh, I, and I love the focus on skills, you know, skills development, because I, I think uh, traditionally in 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 businesses, we've, we've looked with like, where are the where are my weaknesses? And, and rather than playing to the strengths, we've been trying to eliminate the, 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 the weaknesses. And, and that's true in any kind of self-development area. So um what uh, but that, uh, but um, and I, I do also love your your uh, your focus on and separating out the uh, the the critical emergency need versus the longer the longer term stuff so um what what um yeah before i move on where did sando wellness come from where did the word sando come from Oh, sure. So um, that's actually my maiden name. And um, so McKitten is my married name. But my um, my family, my adoptive family, um, they are Sandoz. Right. And I I named it after my um, my my family name, because I think that's where a lot of inspiration came from as far as like what I wanted to do in this practice, um, both the good and the bad, if you want to put it that way. Like I learned from being an adoptee in a white family and I wanted to really take what I learned and put it into practice and in the work that I do with other adoptees. Yeah. So you say on the website that you believe that mental health has to do with our whole self, something that cannot simply be captured, captured in a diagnosis and that traditional Western clinical therapy practices don't always work for everybody. So it seems like you're going broader, right? You you yes. both broader and longer term. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So while there is some crisis intervention every once in a while um, with the people that I work with, it's more for folks who are looking to work more long term on deeper things such as trauma, such as identity, um, grief and loss as well, which a lot of people see as a brief issue. Um, but oftentimes it's it's not. Um, especially when it comes to things like ambiguous loss that a lot of adoptees experience um, when they're kind of investigating or learning more about like where they come from um, and families of origin and things like that. Um, so yeah, a lot of the people that I work with are are the ones who are a little bit more invested in doing some deeper, more like long long term um, life work. Yeah, and and you. Just taking you back, you said something about uh, studying what people are doing to uh, who are leading successful lives. Is that 
what you were going. So, um, so a big like a a big question for you. Um, what what are you trying to? You're taking a long term approach to this, helping them lead, uh, helping your, your your clients lead successful lives. What do you see as the kind of uh, ingredients? I don't know what maybe ingredients. What or the the key factors, the belief systems. I don't know what what would what what word would you say, kind of, or what words would you say, kind of, sum up what you're trying to achieve in terms of helping adoptees lead successful lives. I think maybe the biggest part of that is helping adoptees find their voice. Um, I think that's been something that's been taken away from a lot of people from. A, sometimes like day one where we arrived in the U.S. or wherever else we arrived uh, away from our families of origin. And so to help people find their voice, help them understand their definition of success, because my definition of success is probably not the same as a lot of my clients, but we can all be successful. Um, so sometimes my role is kind of like investigator or like translator where we're kind of like gathering information, gathering data, and then interpreting it in a way that makes sense to the person and helps them use that information to move their life in the direction that they want to go. Okay. So can we go back to the the, the first bit, um, the find their voice thing? So what what does that what does that mean to you and what does that exploration look like? Yeah, absolutely. I think in um, like in Minnesota, where I'm from, there is a huge, as I understand it, like the largest population of um, Korean adoptees um, and transracial adoptees in the entire United States. Um, the narrative around adoption in Minnesota is like very specific and one that I don't think anyone ever taught me overtly when I was growing up, but I grew up knowing that like this was my story, meaning I was saved um, by this like lovely family. There was nothing back for me in Korea, you know, uh, that I, I was so loved and also that I should be so grateful to be here. Um, and having any other emotion other than gratitude was often frowned upon or just kind of like either minimized or like brushed aside. Um, so in helping people find their voice, part of it is like, let's go back and like rewrite your narrative. What did this all really mean to you? We've been told so much about what adoption should mean to us and who we should be um, and what we should feel. But a lot of times, uh, at least me personally, I didn't feel the things that people were telling me that I should feel. Oftentimes yeah. I didn't feel grateful. Um, so that's what's really uh, the part about finding that voice is like understanding our own stories, like as we see it, not as someone else is telling it. Yeah. So it's it, it's uh, finding, it, it's probably, good. does it go back a step then from finding the voice? It's, it, it, it's uh, in a sense, it's, realizing how how we're thinking is being shaped how it's been shaped by others it's almost like becoming conscious you said you said uh you weren't aware of it right so we've got these unwritten rules we've got this we've got this culture which is uh 
the savior narrative people call it don't they yeah so the it, it first off it's i guess it's 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 recognizing the savior narrative and kind of questioning that because that might be almost uh, an an unwritten those are unwritten rules unwritten words unwritten beliefs a, a culture that is has kind of that we're not conscious of that we're not it, it you know the, what do the people say um who discovered water well it wasn't fish something like that yeah we yeah. don't <laughs> yeah it, it, it's it's almost first a bit before we we're, we're helping adoptees find their voice it's it's helping them identify where other people's voices have been the dominant yeah yeah voice in that in, in, in that culture and as you say very strong because of this large proportion of Korean uh, Korean adoptees, so how does that play out? What does what does that look like when you're working with a, a client? It's a lot of um, self discovery for sure, um, but also I, a lot of times people are surprised but not how easily some of these things come to them when they're given the space and time to talk aloud or to think aloud about how they really feel about a situation especially when it comes to their adoption um i haven't had many experiences in my time on this earth as an adoptee um where i've been given the opportunity or like even asked the question like what do you think about this um, I had a lot of people tell me, you know, what it should be like and and what, but I can't remember even maybe to this day, anyone in my family, which are supposed to be the people who are there to like support me and help me be successful. Um, the people who saved me, I don't know if I've ever had a family member even ask me, you know, like, how does this impact you? Um, it's, it's, so that's that's a big part of it is is like really identifying that like we've been kind of denied those spaces before and the the rest of it kind of like comes naturally then too it's like you give someone the opportunity a person who has all the ability in the world but if they don't have the opportunity then we never actually see any of that like turn into anything so you give an adoptee the opportunity to like share their story to understand and talk freely about who they are and how they identify and all the rest of it kind of comes and unfolds naturally. And then all the emotions that come with that also. So I'm kind of like the person who's kind of like walking alongside this person too. And it's like, we're talking, we're talking, we're talking. Oh, I'm feeling this. Like, what does this mean? Where is this coming from? And then we kind of like pause for a moment and like maybe go off the road a little bit and explore that a little deeper. Um, but it it does really happen pretty organically, I think, for people. Yeah. The, the the thing the thing that's coming to my mind uh, the words coming to my mind is uh, I, I did one year of Latin right when I was twelve or something like that and they didn't teach us this but I heard it from a I heard it from a mentor of mine um, a few years ago it's really stuck with me so the word educate comes from the Latin educare right and it and it means to draw out from so. What you're doing is you're drawing out what's already within the individual's, the client's head and heart, right? Um, it's 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 a it's a it's a it's a 
like it sounds like it's a, a gentle questioning process and um and a and a space and that's that's maybe why yeah okay so i can now see what find the voice means because it, it's find the voice it's being asked questions about this whereas you know but we we think of education as trying to well i do anyway is trying to you know you think of schools right force feeding information trying to shove information into people's heads that's the general idea isn't it you know like you're cramming for an exam and like we've got to sh- we've got to get all this information into you right rather than the actual word educare which means to draw out so you're about a space to draw out and and there's also uh there's a um there's uh there's a leader kind of there's a traditionally we think of it's the teacher that knows and the student that doesn't and you're not doing that you're you're just giving them the space so uh what does that what does that look like for you i when you were talking about really the definition of like education that makes so much sense and i think back to my days in school even like in grade school the teachers that helped me grow the most and maybe were the most like impactful like educators in my life were the the teachers who were really invested in like knowing who I was and drawing out those skills or like finding ways that I could apply my abilities to being successful in whatever like you know class I was in or whatever thing I was learning um and this is just kind of coming to mind right now too but maybe that's something Uh, that I draw kind of like my work from nowadays, thinking about the people who have informed my life, mentors and professional educators and and whatnot too. Um, I hate this idea of like this power dynamic, which I've seen a lot working in more of formal clinic and hospital settings too, um, and in government work where there's this power dynamic, like somehow I as like a licensed therapist know like everything. And it's like, I, I don't, I know some things, but when it comes to the people that I'm working with, I am not the expert at all. And so I really call on the people that I work with to help me learn about who they are as people and tell me about what they're the experts in, meaning like their life and the, their selves. Um, I, don't, I don't know any of that. So kind of back to like my website and when I talk about this like holistic approach, I'm not going to go in there and use the same type of like modality or the same kind of techniques with every client. In fact, all of my work with every client that I work with looks very different because it's relying on this person to really kind of like lead the way or at least kind of like open the door and start walking down that path because I don't know. I'm not the expert when it comes to their experience. Yeah. So it's it, it go. I mean, you you use the word um, use the word investigator and translator before. So I guess the investigator that that that's um, that's where we've got the questioning part, and that maybe starts with questioning the the perceived. Uh, well, sorry, the questioning. What would we call it? The culture questioning the un questioning the unquestioned culture perhaps or maybe one way of looking at it uh within um within circles and we're also we're, we're questioning also this power dynamic and we're questioning the fact that the teacher has all the answers 
and the student, the student, and it, and it's a transfer of the answers from the teacher to the student. Uh, so it it sounds to me it all sounds about um, sort of questions are a, a key part of it, uh, and like is that are some of those questions about busting beliefs? Is that is that one of the ways that you that that you go in beliefs about people's self ability or something? I mean, does that does that figure? I. I think it can be part of that and and more I think the questions are a form of like reflection and validation and okay. so it's not like I'm you know interrogating a person and be like what is this why why is this what do you think this means it's really empowering people to think deeper about their own experiences too so kind of like opening up that space again and being like asking questions about things that are okay asking questions about things that you've been told all your life that this is the way that it is questioning that that's okay let's let's do that together um and so the questioning is a lot more of a tool to incite or to offer validation to people who maybe have been um had their experiences like minimized or diminished yeah what was coming to mind i just did a another uh, recording with two two transracial adoptees um and one of them talked about this uh, she she'd got fixed in her head around the age of four or five that um, that you know she wasn't uh, smart enough to be kept she wasn't good looking enough to be kept you know that's why she ended up in this uh, and and then at some point I think she said when she was around twenty something happened that led her to to question that belief and she but she'd been holding on to that belief for sixteen years um and it, it it got me because it reflected a belief that came up for me when i was 40 right um which was my birth mom didn't love me enough to keep me so this do you it, it is a lot of your work around that you because there's there's reflection the space for reflection there's validation, but there's also a, a, a gentle questioning, is it? A gentle, I don't know, uh, pointing to, what was the other word you used? Translating? Yeah, what do you mean by translating? Maybe that'd be a good question. I, I think translating in this situation to this idea of like identity or like self-esteem or belief in yourself too to help a person kind of like translate but also kind of understand like the origins of these beliefs that we hold um that is something that i i work with a lot of um adoptees on is this idea of like not being good enough or like not um feeling like they can have these really like attached deep connections because of fears of abandonment or fears of you know not not living up to someone else's standard um, and so we're kind of looking at those like beliefs, understanding where they're coming from. And we're kind of like redefining or like reframing the language around like when we say like, I'm not lovable because if I was lovable, my mom wouldn't have abandoned me or given me up for adoption. It's like, well, what does that really mean? Every time you're saying that to yourself, what is that instilling in you? 
And a lot of times it's like self-hatred, um, self-loathing. A lot of us hold like a lot of internalized racism um, growing up in white families when we're not white. And so it's translated and kind of emanates. We can see like this, this one like feeling or one experience or like one like sentence of like, I'm not lovable, how that influences and kind of like spreads into all these different facets of our lives. And so we're going to interpret that then or learn how to interpret that in a different way to figure out how do we kind of like cut that off or stop that cycle and do something different with that information. Yeah. The metaphor that came to me was like you, 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 you tipping, you get a little a, 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 pint, a pint of dark blue ink, you know, that you'd use in an ink pen. Uh, probably a bit old fashioned. I'm showing my age here, right? <laughs> but you know, you you put that into a and you put that into a swimming pool. The swimming pool's like thirty yards by fifteen yards, maybe six six foot deep, eight foot deep to two, like, and it spreads the whole way, right? It the the that little pint has suddenly diluted, uh, and it, it's become the uh, it the, the water's gone blue, right? Just just from just from that, um, that the origin of that belief. Um, so, how does the, how does this, how does the dynamic, or is there a connection between this um, cultural dynamic that you talked about, the fact that uh, this this savior narrative, the fact that you know America is the land of opportunity, nothing back in. There's nothing back for us in career. There was nothing for me in career, so I had to go. Yeah. Um, and that, and we've we've got to be grateful. How does that? Is is there a well? Is there a tie up between that and the the belief that I'm not lovable? Do they sit together? Yeah. Um, yes. I mean, all of these things are kind of this big tangled. It's not a mess necessarily, but it's definitely a lot of things that kind of like overlap and like get kind of like muddled along the way too. So they're all influencing one another for sure. Um, but I think the the thing that becomes really kind of disturbing for a lot of people or becomes a challenge is this like two conflicting beliefs, right? It's like one is like, I'm not lovable. And also a lot of us still feel that like draw our desire to know more about where we come from. And so it's like we've some of us have gone through those stages of like, yeah, we're we're angry. Or then we feel like the grief and loss of a life that we didn't have the opportunity to live and like play out. So it's like sometimes we're fighting between this feeling of like, do I fight this? Do I be angry? Or do I let myself like grieve and feel that loss and be sad? And so there's a lot of conflicting emotions, I think, when it comes to different kinds of trauma, but especially like complex trauma like adoption, where it's like, yeah, I feel one way. And a lot of us feel grateful. Like, it's okay to feel grateful, too. It's like we don't have to pick one feeling. So I think thinking about like, um, you know, being being really detached from where I come from, but also feeling really grateful too for like what I have and what I've been able to like build in my own life here can be challenging at times. Yeah. I, I, Cause I think a, a lot, I think a lot about this, um, about the gratitude thing, because I see so much of it on 
social media um like people getting adoptees getting really really upset at being told that they should be grateful right um and yeah it's okay it, it but but when it comes from us it's okay it's like so can you can you unpack this because i've never uh, had any experience of this i think there's a there's a slight cultural difference between the uk and the us is that we're not we're, we're not um i think i think generally speaking uh and this is just my guess right that we don't get told that as much i don't i don't think of, of english british adoptees get told that they should be grateful um, as much as American. I, I don't know. Or maybe it's just me because I've never been told that. But if we're feeling ungrateful and we're told that we should be grateful, then that that's going to really, really great, isn't it? In a yeah. bad way, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I I hope that's the case too. And I, I don't know. I'm trying to think back. I don't know if I've ever, I've definitely not been told by my family, like overtly that I, that I should be grateful. Um, I don't think anyone, yeah, definitely my parents have never said that to me. Um, but it's more kind of like this greater sense again of that like narrative of like being an adoptee and especially an adoptee from a different country, um, especially an adoptee who is Asian, um, transracial adoptees too, I think have specific types of like experiences and challenges too that adoptees who are, you know, from the United States, while they have their own challenges and their own experiences too, it looks very different than someone who's from a different country. Um, I don't want to throw too much hate towards the United States. There's lots of great things happening in Minnesota that I'm very proud of. And also we are not in my experience, like we're not always the most in culture, like culturally informed people. So there's like a lot of preconceived notions about like Asian people and Asian countries and Africa and like Latin America and a lot of stereotypes, which I imagine happens a lot of places. Um, but I think there's this idea of like outside of America um, and maybe like, you know, uh, Europe, uh, many places in Europe, like it's very uncivilized. Yeah. or there's like not like good things it's it's just like these people these poor people who are just like need yeah. to be saved I, I think for as a brit the the closest thing that i can get to this is is you know the kind of like, like an imperial narrative you know like a victorian england and you know half of the three quarters of the of, of the world's if you looked at an atlas three quarters of it was red apparently or two thirds of it was red or something and red signified the British empire. Right. So I, I think that's probably the closest thing that I can get to it is like an imperial narrative. And, you know, and, and this, this came shockingly into focus for me in, um, on holiday in Africa, in, in, um, in the Gambia, which is where, the, a lot of the slave trade existed, right? And the, the so there's there's the uh, there's the, the there's the American end of of the trade. The Americans involved in the trade for the plantations and all that sort of stuff. Uh, there's the Brits involved in it, uh, and and then there's the local Africans involved in it as well. 
but when I felt that kind of uh, when I heard this stuff, so I'd seen Roots on on when I had seen the the, the miniseries Roots on telly went in the seventies, which was uh, Alex Haley and and but Hunter Kinte, his great granddad, yeah, he was he was from the Gambia, right? And when when I was there, when I was in the Gambia, and I'm I'm chatting to the the, the waiters and they're telling me this stuff, it's like. I'm getting a feel for our kind of, uh, yeah, an imperial plat, an imperial past that I'm really not. Yeah, I, I, I'm really anti that sort of stuff. So, um, one of the things that's coming to me is that we've got this. Go back to this savior narrative and nothing back in Korea, and and I was thinking, I'm also thinking, like you know, thinking. America, the land of the free and opportunity, which is kind of what we hear you talking about. But I'm thinking that we were doing that before, right? The Brits were doing that before, you know, the empire, the good old days when we had the empire and, you know, where they ne- the sun never sat on our empire and all this baloney, disgusting <laughs> stuff. Right. Um, the, the, there might be this, is, is there this thing like the sense that, you know, USA good, Korea bad, I'm Korean, you know, Korea, sorry, USA everything, Korea mm-hmm. nothing, nothing in Korea, nothing Korea, Korea, so there's nothing in Korea and therefore I'm nothing. Am I going too far on this? No, absolutely. I think I, yes, I'm nodding my head the whole time because I, and those are the things that we internalize from a young age. So maybe no one's overtly saying like you're bad because you're Asian or because you're from this country. But when you hear people talk negatively or like disparagingly about the place from where you come from, then automatically as like a young kid with a little kid brain too, like you're just making those associations because that's what you're doing when you're young and you're developing your brain. You're understanding these um, sometimes pretty like complex associations, um, but then they become pretty ingrained too. So it's just like, yeah, if you hear like, we saved you from this place. There was nothing there. Um, you know, maybe your birth family was bad because they weren't able to take care of you. Then you feel like that's part of you. And so there must be bad things about you. Yeah. Also. yeah. So the unwritten culture stuff, thing that's coming for me is, because uh, we like, watch a lot of American telly and, you know, there's a lot. So we watch Blue Bloods, right, which is a, a cop show it's in, in, um, in New York. And so the but so they talk but they're Irish they're the the Catholic Irish Catholic family are the 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 dynasty the the blue the blue bloods the um what do they call them I forgot the name but their their family um is uh, but the the land of opportunity and then you've got the Italians and you've got you know, different Asians groups and, stuff, and and they're all uh, you know and it, it it is that well we came for economic opportunity there was that that's a kind of a if you go to like i've been to new york a few times and it is that melting pot it is that place where people go for econ, you know to make their make their fortune right um so this is this is very culturally entrenched um i guess I and mean, it, it like british is you know the we we talk about this quite a lot in the in the britain in the british culture you know we're still trading on that past we we still think with that we're we're that important that we're not small 
we we may be small, but we you know we batter you know we we punch above our weight and that kind of old British plucky plucky things. So these things are invisible. They're so sewn into our cultures that they're com- completely um, in- invisible. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, can we go back to the translator part? Because I think I've got the investigator. I can. I have. Uh, finding their voice we've kind of talked about that re- you know realizing where their their voice has been uh, reading re- realizing where the adopted voices haven't been heard helping them find their voice what, can we go back to that translator piece what do you mean what do you mean by yeah. that yeah and kind of going back to the finding the voice too i i think maybe i missed spoke in the way or I'm thinking about a little bit more too and I kind of imagine like a uh, a room full of people and everyone's talking at full volume and an adoptee is kind of there trying to speak up about their experience so everyone else is talking about what adoption means and then there's the one adoptee there trying to like yell above this whole crowd and so it's like I don't know if any of us like maybe our voices have been um, you know minimized or diminished um, but they've always been there. And so it's, again, this idea of like giving the space for that voice to like exist um, or be focused on or highlighted. And so I think that's part of the translation part too, is kind of like working through like the noise and the static too, to really understand uh, yeah. um, and hear like, what is it that you're you know saying or what is it that you're feeling from the inside? What does that all mean? And then taking out maybe some of the parts to those narratives that have kind of been spun for us too, and really understanding, separating like the narratives and the things that we um, were taught um, versus like how we really feel and what it really means to us to be an adoptee. Yeah. So it's almost as if the the beliefs are, are handed down, and we're and we're questioning what we're being handed down, and. The, the you I think you touched on the the confidence thing as well because that when when you said finding um finding their voice the first thing that came to my mind was like a confidence a confidence thing so how does that look for you and your clients yeah absolutely like confidence is a big part because if you're trying to scream above like a hundred other people who are talking at full volume eventually I would think too like either your voice kind of like gets hoarse or you stop trying and so that confidence in how I feel in like what I think about my um myself my identity my adoption story too sometimes becomes um really small maybe skewed but also I would find myself in a lot of spaces where I didn't feel confident talking about it mm-hmm. um or I'd over explain it in a way that made other people feel comfortable yeah. So having the confidence not only to speak up and say what I feel, but having the confidence too to like say what is true to me and not say what will make everyone else feel comfortable and okay. Uh huh. Right. So um, and so it, it must be it's it must be there's got to be a deeper thing behind the 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 confidence, uh, the feeling of confidence. What I mean. I think you used, did you use the word self-esteem is it self-esteem is it sense of self what is it for you what what do you what, what is it that you think is the driver of that confidence I think again it's this like 
affirmation or validation. Um, confidence comes from, you know, our sense of self and feeling that we know ourselves deeply. Um, but I think that the confidence often comes from feeling validated in our experiences, which is something a lot of adoptees, I think, have been denied and continue to be denied. Um, so kind of thinking about that idea, too, of like, when you meet another adoptee and you have this like, you know, kind of unspoken bond or understanding to like if a random stranger, which is, this has happened before, unfortunately, but if a random stranger was to approach me and say like, oh, I can tell you're an adoptee, like I would, I would, I would be angry about that. But then there's other spaces too, where it's like, I've met other adoptees and they're like, yeah, you're an adoptee. And it's just like a whole different type of like experience. Um, and that's what's given me a lot of the confidence that I hold and try to share with other people in the work that I do is that validation in my experience with other adoptees. Yeah. Uh, but they need to see it for themselves, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So that begs a how question. And that's a tough one, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> well, and I think that's where like the empowerment and like referring and uh, making sure that the person knows to like they are the expert. It doesn't matter what the adoption society said about who you are or who you were when you arrived here. It doesn't matter what your parents say. It doesn't matter what, um, you know, even like the research says about adoptees and like their development and attachment styles and all that stuff too. It's like, what is your experience? Tell me more and give me, spare no detail as much as you feel comfortable. Tell me about like your experience. Um, that's That's the thing that we're, missing you know it's like we're talking about all these things that we are supposedly to know about adoptees like uh you know um anxious attachment and things like that reactive attachment and things like that but it's just like okay but if you talk to an adoptee and it's just like well you know why or you know why is this happening or why do you feel this way too like you might get a very different answer than what some of the research would say yeah um there's a few things popping up for me there is other statistics right but you know like um there's only one of us though <laughs> i think you know like, oh well because a lot of people would go on about this you know um on uh, like and i think it because we've been so because it, it's a minor i think and i also think it's to do with it it's a minority thing you know it, minorities whether it's based on uh, ethnicity or whether it's based on uh, a, a adopted or biological child of you know like minorities tend to get a tend to get a rougher deal and they uh, and the systems the bureaucracies are set up for the masses not the not the minorities so thing that came to me you know like we've been invalidated as the minorities tend to get that, that's what happens isn't it, it, it um they so we shout louder and then we get told we're angry or whatever. Uh, and then people, so people be going out there trying to get others to listen and and, and uh, hear our experience and hear about these statistics. But that's, the, you know, you talked to earlier on, that, that's about looking at the system. I, I'm, I'm, what I'm most, what I care about most is the, the, the Simon Ben system and the thriving adoptee system. You know, the, the, the guests that I have on the show and I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to change the world. I'm just focusing on what 
you know, I, I'm not waiting for the world to change before I can be happy. I'm not trying to change the system. I'm trying to affect what I can do, like support adoptees, focus on not being one of the statistics about the suicide stuff and not doing that. Um, so and uh, 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 that kind of links into your focus. You, you're focusing on the client and what success means to them. It's an individual thing based on their individual strengths and helping them find what thriving means for them rather than you telling them or you shouting the statistics at them. That that's I'm not I'm not interested in I'm not interested in the statistics. I'm interested in me, right? And yeah. You know, I, I saw some video. Um yeah, no, forget that. I'll I'll I'll, I'll go, I'll be ranting on about my own stuff there. Um I'm conscious of time, uh, Lynn. Uh, we've covered quite a lot of ground. What what have, what have I not asked you about that you'd like to to share? Oof, um, I think that as an adoptee myself, and also as an Asian person too, it's like, yeah, I get to be who I am. Um, I'm not a part of like a group of people. I'm an individual. And so for other people out there who feel like, you know, my adoption story, like my story, who I am doesn't matter. Um, I'm here to tell them that, no, you do, you do matter. And like your story is important and it's unique. Um, and that I hope in the work that you're doing, Simon, and the work that all these other adoptee advocates out there are doing too, that we continue to like find more avenues and places where we can connect and we can be validated in our experiences yeah. and get like the pain, uh, get the support that we need for like the pain that we experience um, and to be recognized for that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there's a sense that we're both working to support. I, I'm working to support my guests and my listeners. You're working to support your clients. And if we build that stronger sense of self, we play, we help our listeners and clients play to their strengths, then the, the voiceries will be. There'll be more voices, and the voices will be heard, and the voices will be heard. But they'll be heard. They'll be coming from coming from a strong place, right? So I, I spoke to a transracial adoptee, a Brit transracial adoptee, one of the first um, first few episodes I did, and she's she's done a lot of advocacy work, and she said within the British system, within British politics, the politicians can shout and get angry, right, in their little gangs in their groups in in the houses of parliament stuff but if anybody goes in who's not part of not part of the system and shows any anger at all they just get cancelled mm -hmm. so we we need to go in with a stronger sense of self a, a stronger self sense of grounding and a and a, and a more even voice a more even temperament if we want to get uh, this is just the, the british system I, and i don't know what it's i mean like we've we've seen some of the look we've got but we had boris you had 
you had uh, you had the Donald. So, like, we're not going to get into any comparisons between our political systems. But um, this is what they say. This is like we, I, I, if if we if we're if we're stronger in ourselves, then you know, like, if you if you if you raise your voice, you've lost the argument, haven't you? This is that just that just an adoption thing. You raise your like. I'm, I'm, my mates tell me about this with their kids, right? You know, if you lose your voice, if you lose your voice with you, you lose, lose your, um, yeah. So, um, anything else you'd like to mention or should we bring it in? Yeah, just that, um, yeah, you're, you're not alone out there, adoptees, like you're not, um, and that there is like help and support. There's more and more resources that are out there, which is great. Um, and also when you're looking for a therapist, just like from a professional standpoint too, if someone, so we talked about this before, Simon, but like they use this kind of like terminology of like adoption competency when they are talking about professionals who work with adoptees or work with like adoptive parents. Um, and uh, I think it's really important that in kind of like having a voice and finding a voice too, that when adoptees go out and if they choose to find help in the form of like therapy, to ask their therapist if they say they're adoption competent, I'm doing air quotes right now, adoption competent, like what does that mean to them? And what lens is that coming from? Because a lot of times the training for adoption competency work for professionals comes from the adoption agencies and the social work systems and the government, which is something that we're trying to kind of move away for, at least find more balance for. So uh, there can be a lot of different opinions and not just one. Yeah, I I, I had some a couple of therapists. Uh, well, I spoke to a couple of therapists therapist before I settled on one for a while a few years back and these days if I was going for it I, I just wouldn't I wouldn't speak to one that wasn't an adoptee I, I wouldn't you know that's that would be my thing so um uh oh I should say a legal disclaimer at that point this is just my opinion ladies and gentlemen and mm -hmm. non-binary people whatever right so thank you thanks a lot Lynn and uh thank you to listeners we will speak to you again very soon Thank you. Bye.